Hi, you are listening to Bog Buddies, a sort of tributary to the Brute Norse podcast in the form of panel discussions by and for the Brute Norse community, with minimal editing. Last time we discussed The Northman by Robert Eggers before we actually saw it, and today we are discussing The Northman by Robert Eggers after we actually saw it. Many shocking revelations will be made in this episode, with spoilers as far as the eye can see, just for your attention. Anyway, enjoy the show. Right, it's another episode of Bog Buddies. Welcome to the show, Vikings and Vikings. We have uh, with us in this uh, uh, kind of impromptu panel discussion. We got Hugo, we got Conrad, we have Axel Klosen, who should be a familiar name to everybody, and of course we have Blairy. These are all members of the Brute Norse community. There might be other people joining <laughs> as we record, um, but yeah. There's no particular plan here. We just sketched it out. We're going to be talking about the Northmen, which we talked about in the last Bog Buddies. Uh, uh, and that was more about our hopes and fears for the movie. And uh, now some of our fears might have become, you know, some of our hopes might have been realized and our fears might have been uh, justified or not. I don't know. So uh, welcome, welcome, guys. <clears throat> you've, all, uh, you've all seen the movie, I hope. Well, somebody should speak up. Yeah, yeah, of course, of yeah. course. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. What did you guys think? Was it as bad as you feared, or was it as good as you hoped? <laughs> well, maybe I can go first then. Um, no, my expectations were actually met. Um, I did, of course, a little bit of background research before I went to the to the cinema. Um, but I have to say that I do believe that the, the final product um, actually, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I wasn't really disappointed. Of course, you always have your fears, as one rightly does when there's anything that's Viking themed, uh, especially on the big screen. But I do believe that all of the references, although for many people maybe subtle or, you know, just probably just it doesn't even register with them. But for someone with a background and passion and, and interest for, for the past, as well, all of us, basically, um, I do believe that we all caught up on most of them. Um, and uh, I think it's also a, a good nod to the uh, both academic and uh, I would say living history uh, community uh, at large, if you will. Just from your summary there, there's just uh, so much to unpack. <laughs> I mean, uh, the living history community? clearly has uh, been completely instrumental in uh, developing what would become like the the aesthetic of this film. Uh, also closely associated with uh, some of the academics who were consulted in this film. We have Neil Price, for example, which is the most like obvious, uh, uh, how should I say, scholarly imprint mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in this film, who is, of course, closely associated with the kind of Vendel era, migration period, living history scene, uh, Will Pedunas and, and those guys. So a lot of the props just looked like the sort of stuff that, you know, named artists and craftsmen that, that you know, you and I are very familiar with Axel could have made. And for all I know, some of them even made it. I don't know. 
I think we should give ourselves a round of applause actually for the last episode because there are a few things that we kind of foreshadowed and called even then, you know, uh, and a lot of our predictions I think came true. Uh, there's a few like funny things like the 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 Jarl Balin joke that came out in the end when we were all drunk. It's just it's funny how like the film opens and uh, you see this uh, freaking uh, uh, what is supposed to be a Norwegian petty kingdom, but they go out of the way to say that this is not Norway or something, or they, they avoid, deliberately avoid saying that. They say North Atlantic euphemistically. Yeah. Um, and there's this kingdom of uh, Ravensö, which seemed like a bit of an odd choice for naming a petty kingdom, as if they would have no concept of political territory or anything like that um, at the time. <laughs> but uh, but Another literally, way of saying Carmoy, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I would say literally, look, it looks like fucking White Run from Skyrim. That was one of the first things I saw, and I was like, oh shit, you know, here we go. Uh, and uh, then uh, I think when they start uh, speaking Old Norse in some of the, um, you know, the early uh, dialogue of the film. I immediately was struck by the fact that they had like an Icelandic, modern Icelandic pronunciation. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know what, what that was. Uh, yeah, so there was, um, yeah, right off the bat, Icelandic Old Norse uh, pronunciation. And I thought, oh, another red flag. You know, I'm going to have to listen to this all movie. Uh, but that turned out not to be true. It seems that, uh, that uh, there were different kind of preps and different uh, abilities in the actors to actually try to pronounce Old Norse. And this is probably like, you know, I've, I've been a pronunciation consultant myself, and I know how impossible it can be uh, to get people to uh, uh, interpret the sounds that are coming out of your mouth uh, in a way that is meaningful to them and that they can, like, actually replicate. So as the movie progressed, uh, I could hear that they definitely tried uh, to, to get people to kind of pronounce old noise, but that's like, that's some extremely niche observations on my end maybe well, um, um i might inject i think that the pronunciations were in fact better than when actors who are not native scandinavians learn to speak either norwegian swedish or danish for you know a movie or, or whatever have you so uh, kudos i have to say they, they really put some effort into it oh yeah for sure it's not like the norwegian x-files episode for sure <clears throat> yeah um hmm where do we go from here? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the critiques that uh, that I saw very early on surrounded the plot, that it was this kind of uh, cheesy and kind of melodramatic, and it was playing into all of these uh, Viking stereotypes and things like that. I, I didn't really... I understand what they mean. The dialogue wasn't always the best, but let's face it, if we read the sagas, the, the dialogue isn't always fantastic there either, you know? No, I think that the dialogues, all things considered, uh, is somewhat true to the source material, if you will. Um, and a bit, you know, how should I say, by modern day standards, stiff. But keep in mind, um, you know, this, like Robert Eggers tries to also convey a little bit of that uh, archaic uh, attitude, if you will which is also seen throughout the rest of the, uh, well, <laughs> basically the whole movie, if you will, from beginning till end. Um, and, um, and it shows you now, you know, that the source material, especially the literary source material has been read and digested. Um, of course, if you want to go and watch an accurate Amleth 
uh, based movie, then one might be disappointed because, of course, it does its own interpretation of uh, the original works, if you will. Uh, yeah, it was so Grammaticus or yeah, so. It was loosely based on it, but took a lot of influence yeah. of of Icelandic sagas, and I think that that was actually the the right choice. I think that. Uh... And also, of course, it was uh, influenced by the later uh, Hamlet. Uh, let's be honest, and other mm. sources as well. Um, you know, it wasn't quite a Viking uh, spaghetti movie uh, that we have from the eighties from Iceland, Hafnen uh, Flieger, or you know. Um, but it kind of also follows that uh, trajectory. If you yeah, that tradition is definitely there yeah, as well. Yeah. It's got it's got that kind of yeah. It's got a bit of Conan the Barbarian vibe to it. Um, yes. I think that that is because of some of the common influences that Conan is actually inspired by kind of heroic legendary narrative. And uh, this is um, an interpretation of, uh, well, that core tradition, right? So so that is kind of to be expected. Um, so if I may interject a little bit um, about something completely different. Uh, so it's been a while since I did this Zoom stuff. And now it turns out that they've uh, made some kind of change where if you want to run a meeting longer than 10 minutes, you have to pay for an upgraded version of Zoom. Uh, so we are currently running out of time. So if you people can keep the conversation going while I uh, get my credit card out, that would be very useful. <laughs> so I, I told nice you it, Yeah, I told you it would be pandemonium. <laughs> and welcome, welcome to uh, welcome to the show, Stain Fostovel. If you have, if you have a microphone, you're free to chip in whenever you know if you've seen the movie or whatever. Or if you haven't, right. you know, just you know. <clears throat> Fine. Okay, we'll, we'll we'll keep uh, we'll keep the show running while you're. Uh, it's you know, like while that. You left uh, the helm. <laughs> it's like that other Viking movie, Speed, where if I if I stop, we blow up. <laughs> so so yeah please well maybe some of the other uh, participants can chip in and say you know, well i can they, say uh, that i was very pleasantly surprised that it wasn't a hollywood blockbuster which some people started to to fear uh, uh that eggers was going like uh, making a commercial movie all of a sudden after his brilliant uh, other uh, more uh, the lighthouse and the witch and, yeah esoteric films like the witch yeah, and uh, yeah. like oh, which i absolutely loved uh, and yeah all this this academic nerdery aside like the story was um you know i was fooled for a long time believing that this was that classic it turned into a classic um, revenge movie which I liked, but then as the character, main character or protagonist got closer to his goals, um, things uh, weren't so uh, black and white as one might expect. Mm, for sure. No, I think it's uh, very well put actually what you're saying there. Um, my impression just is based upon the feedback so far is it's kind of mixed based upon what people expected from this kind of movie because they go to the theater expecting just another gory whacking you know inspired movie mm -hmm. and they just want the action without too much thinking maybe without all the drama if you will but that's not true to the source material uh if anything 
you know, this is the kind of stuff that people digested in large volumes in, well, most likely in the Viking Age itself, but also in the early Middle Ages, you know, this kind of revenge, dramatic, like trying to, to fight fate, destiny, but, you know, it's just all gonna <laughs> end up where you mm. were meant to be in a way. And there's so many of these facets, all this cloak and dagger business going on. And, um, and yeah, of course, also the elements of the super supernatural mixed in there, you know, which is also mm. very typical for um, many of these, both Icelandic and uh, sagas, as well as other source material from the same time period. Um, so yeah, for sure. Um, but overall, I do, I do agree with you on that. I think it was definitely a good summary of also how I expected, in a way, the movie would turn out to be. So mm. um, I was pleasantly surprised, but also kind of expecting it to be another Eggers movie. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was glad it was that and not. But that's the thing, though. I think, um, if I might just say, I think Eggers, uh, he appreciates the details. And that's the world building. And that's extremely important um, when you want to make something believable. And you see it in the two pro uh, previous movies as well. It's like, you know, I know for a fact that he literally uh, started studying how it's, you know, all these uh, books and manuals about, you know, life on a, a lighthouse and, you know, really going into trying to understand the mindset, how re life really is. And also for, uh, for the witch, um, although uh, as uh, per our former uh, recording, um, there were some uh, negative feedback from a certain someone that lives with Eric uh, in regards <laughs> to the attire. <laughs> so clearly he did rub someone the wrong way, but um, the overhaulness definitely, you know, rings, calls true to, to, to the kind of uh, approach he has uh, mm. to, uh, to the movies. Um, yeah, it shows. Um, yeah, it's great handiwork. For sure, for sure. Uh, it's it's been interesting to hear from people both in the theater and other people I've talked to online who went when they aren't invested or don't know anything about that world that he's building that, that you know that aren't like us like who get so much out of all these little details they kind of seem to to flounder on that um particularly just like the entire worldview this worldview of fate um you know, that the story has to go this way. I've heard a lot of complaints about that, which has been interesting. It's fascinating for, for sure. Yeah. yeah, for me, it's what I expected. You know, it's true to that world. And there's so much in there that, I don't know, there's, yeah, it's just, there's so much rich world building that for me, just I want, wanted and was, wanted to be and was absorbed in that world. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's part of why this, in some ways it isn't a blockbuster because for just, you know, your regular person off the street, the, I don't know, it's, it's frustrating that maybe he just dies at the end. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that is definitely uh, what a lot of people uh, thought as well when they, when they left the theater, this kind of like, you know, 
what did I just spend over two hours watching? And like this guy who I've been rooting for dies in this <laughs> like hellish landscape. And it feels kind of empty. But that's that's the source material as well. I mean, there's there's no happy endings for a lot of these heroes. No. It's tragic. No, it's violence oh, and carnage. And that's the revenge doesn't taste as sweet as it should. Exactly, yeah. you know. So, so, so there's there's also a message to be had in a lot of these uh, sagas that this this constant fueling of hatred only leads you to um, you know a path of destruction and uh, ultimately of of, of death uh, for not just yourself but for a lot of people involved. Um, so, so absolutely, like Eric said, very violent uh, in in that sense for sure. Yeah, and I mean like. Um... How to put it in in the contemporary you know pop culture today uh the superhero is always kind of adjusted back he just bounces back to his regular life you know it's like superman or fucking captain america or whatever uh, there has to always be this kind of he always lives in the contemporary world you know there's never any like arc for him to develop or anything like that it's just like he's he he, he can never like fully die it's like episodic, kind of cartoony, uh, like approach to to heroic narrative, which is not what was going on in, um, you know, in Iron Age Europe, for instance. It's like the hero has to die, to be a hero, you know. And the mm -hmm. hero is not actually supposed to be like someone you necessarily look up to because of his great deeds and his uh, sense of justice or anything like that. Absolutely not. No, for sure. Um... Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of moral ambiguity that the casual viewer might not be used to. Uh, like when you go to the movie theater, you're kind of set on a certain, you know, uh, hero's journey, like you've seen so many times. And you go there because you expect some, you know, story arc to be fulfilled. But then. Maybe the hero isn't as heroic as one is used to. And then what's the cause anyway? For sure. The th yeah. thing is, there's probably a lot more, um, you know, if you want to make an analogy to Greek tragedy and this like tragic fate uh, of, uh, of the protagonist or, or even the antagonist, if you will, <laughs> um, then, then this medieval chivalric uh you know knight in shining armor happy ending you know saves the damsel in distress <laughs> kind of arc that is so popularized these days and of course it's also to an extent makes sense if you will because at least in the western world we have had you know uh we went through the middle ages and uh and all the literature works that was made in that time period and has affected um uh, author since um, and and our expect expectations for um, for for storytelling. So the yeah. fact that we're going further back in time and then examining works that are you know de facto older than a lot of the source material or, or storytelling from the Middle Ages onwards. Um, sometimes I guess people are just not you know expecting it. It's, it it kind of reminded me a little bit about when people take up, uh, let's say, ancient music 
uh, and the tunes are off and people yeah. are like what is this it sounds awful <laughs> you know it's like how can people listen to this um but then you know fine one could say that maybe it's modern interpretation and it's not completely accurate to how music was you know around 1080 and before but then also maybe it's just modern expectations that we've been trained to think in a certain way around mm. uh, sound essentially and music and i know eric for a fact who of course has done a lot of you know um playing on, on the lyre and uh the, the, and other instruments for sure i mean he has uh, you have a quite a repertoire eric when it comes to uh to ancient instruments and uh ethnic instruments if you will so so yeah it's like you know this is part of the reason why i think western audience might find it a bit odd um, and why it probably won't do good in the, the box office as well you know when it's uh, released sooner or later um say for the diehard uh you know <laughs> nerdy people who <laughs> loves that period and <laughs> um yeah if i might interject speaking of the for sure the box office um i almost feel like you know I, i'm very glad i'm sure like everyone else that this isn't uh, a marvel movie or a blockbuster and that wow. Eggers is still you know doing his thing on the other hand i kind of wish he'd marketed as, it as one i think with with a big ambitious artistic movie like this part of um of, you know part of the marketing should be almost conning people into thinking it's it's um it's some kind of like you know marvel blockbuster to get them in there and justify the budget because I don't know about you guys, but I'd quite like to see to see more of this. I'd like to see Eggers trusted with with larger budgets. I'd like to see scholars be consulted more. I'd like you know all this historical actually to be more common. But for that to kind of translate, of course, you need you need the money. <laughs> and uh, and um, since I did I don't know the way they marketed it was very like twenty two years ago. It's like it's Gladiator. You know, it's Braveheart as they were drawing the comparisons to, and I was like, these movies are, are very old. You should have they should have amped up the fantasy elements and the, the you know the the people like Thor, you know, like yeah, the Marvel movies. You should have they should have gone for like I think maybe like this is Skyrim at the movie angle, just to get people in there, and then hopefully you blow some of their minds and and they love it. But uh, I don't I don't know how you guys uh, felt about that in terms of the marketing. I think they kind of misstepped a bit there. No, I, I think that uh, that what you're saying is completely correct. Um, and um, and I but I think that like this is kind of this the starving and suffering artist in me who is uh, who just hates uh, maybe I have like contempt for my audience or something like that. And I just want like the plebs to suffer. Uh, <laughs> so so I was just kind of like hoping <laughs> I was hoping that this was uh, would be that movie that uh, that would uh, piss off. A bunch of people and people would come in there and kind of like see like how little they actually understand about this time period uh my vanity is like if i was a movie director i would almost want to make that movie that absolutely tanked but will be a cult movie that people will talk about for 50 years you know um which is why i will never be a <laughs> rich and successful movie producer or anything like that and uh, but uh, but yeah, no, I totally understand Hugo because uh, that has been uh, the issue with many uh, great masterpieces, right? Uh, I don't know, like 
um, th that anime film like Akira, you know, it's it was so expensive to make and it took such effort uh, to create it that that like, uh, you know, many other animes, you know, they they pale in comparison to it, you know, but nobody's made it again as a result, you know, so. There's a, you know, there's a bit of uh, of kind of like a Greek tragedy in its own right there. I think there's something very Faustian, but the the movie that undermines itself with its own ambitions. Yeah, I did. Uh, I spoke to someone, um, a friend who's in the movie industry, sort of, and I was just kind of asking, you know, does that kind of cult status come with any benefit for studios? You know what I mean? If people buy the Blu-rays and you know, they do, they do whatever, uh, you know, vintage posters or crap like that for years. And apparently that just has no relevance for the studio because it's all sort of passed on to distributors and stuff and they make almost no money at all. So they're really, they only care about this, this box office taking in like, you know, the first month or two. And then it's all just, it just means nothing to them, which I think is a shame because it's, it deliberately, you know, disincentivizes this kind of like, I don't know, movie with longevity being made because the producer just has no financial ability to make anything back in the long term. Well, there you go. Hollywood is the fucking devil. <laughs> <laughs> Along that same track, something I heard Eggers say um, quite recently, he, he pretty much explicitly says, um, this movie would not be made without the Vikings history show. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you and Axel, you know, does this make that worth it? You know what I mean? Does this justify <laughs> or would you, would you rather? Oh my God. Would you rather throw them both out or is this enough of a, uh, enough of a payoff? This is, this is so horrible because that was literally my shower thought today. You know, because uh, I was I was trying to like do this kind of cheap, uh, cheap quip, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was not literally jerking off in the shower, but I was like uh, masturbating my ego, I guess. And uh, I was thinking, yeah, ha, huh, see here. Because one of the initial things that I saw when the movie came out was that some of the people that really pissed me off online, they were like, no, this film will have such an influence on the coming generations. And this is what we have to deal with for years to come. And this seems to be an individual that doesn't like, doesn't, doesn't mind the kind of the horrible status quo of Viking pop culture. Like there's not, not seen any grievances there. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, this sounds promising. This must be a good movie maybe. And so I saw it and I was like, ah, this is a pretty, you know, pretty, pretty decent film. It's layered. It's got lots of stuff. Uh, and it's kind of that nerdy movie that like um, archeologists and reenactors will be able to appreciate for years to come. You know, it will be like right up there with some of the, some of the best. And, um, I thought to myself, hmm, you know, but how, how did this even happen in the first place? The only, per the only reason why somebody like Eggers would get the, the money and maybe the inclination to make such a movie is because it has been introduced for this mm. horrible dark years of, of Viking trash culture that we've been forced to endure for the past 10 years. I'll step off my soapbox. I, I, I completely agree. Um, it's like, you know, you're dancing with devils in a way. Um, because, I mean, for sure, there's no doubting that if it weren't for the Vikings, and also as of late, uh, Vikings Valhalla, which is a Netflix-based show that was released, I think, uh, this year, 2022, um, we probably wouldn't have, um, you know, 
<laughs> a movie like The Northman made in the first place, which I think start, they started shooting it around 2020 or so um, during, during the pandemic, mind you, or at least the height of the pandemic. Um, so, so for sure, I do believe that, uh, you know, movies like these can, can also, you know, <laughs> the reason why they're even, you know, considering funding a movie like that is because of the hype around Vikings. Now, there has been arguably hype around Vikings for much longer than, you know, this TV show or, or other you know, uh, fictionalized versions of the Viking Age, um, both in literary form as well as, you know, on, on either, you know, as a TV show or on the big screen uh, going to the theater. So I don't think that one can exclusively say that the Northman, uh, you know, were, was made purely because of the Vikings. Um, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's also in large, uh, because there was one scene, uh, we might discuss it briefly now, or to, 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 to a great extent, depending on what people are interested in. <laughs> um, but it's in uh, the, the beginning of the movie, not at the right at the beginning, but when he, once he leaves for, uh, for the east. And when they're uh, rowing on the Volga, uh, you see two longships. Um, and the first longship is actually commandeered by a woman. Did you guys notice that? Uh, and it's actually uh, meant to be the woman that was excavated in the chamber grave from Birka, uh, <laughs> the so-called female warrior, um, or, you know, I say so-called because it's still a dis ongoing discussion um, to whether or not this woman had, you know, this this power that is uh, suggested. Um, so, but but let's say for the argument that indeed she did, then uh, this is Edgar's interpretation of her role uh, while she was alive. Uh, but she didn't have any actual role in the movie. She was just seen commandeering the the first of the two vessels uh, on the boat. She also shows up um, during the raid on the village. She she rides by and complains about the slaves uh, about. Uh, yeah, ah. she doesn't want weak slaves she wants ah, strong that is ones. Correct, that's where actually. i noticed her yes that is, that is correct come to think of it i just noticed her for some reason when she was on the on on the on the longboat uh, yeah it's extremely it's subtle but, yes extremely subtle uh but i i noticed it and i was like hmm, interesting so my first thought was that you know based upon recent um publications on a particular burial or chamber um burial then then i thought hmm, yeah um but actually i didn't i didn't pick up on that when they were attacking the slavic village um well, well you know that's that's one of the reasons why you go back to the movie uh <laughs> once it's released or while it's still in the theaters of course but yeah uh, it's uh, it's so funny because i um when i left the movie theater i thought to myself ah warrior women were refreshingly absent from the film and it just turns out that i had blocked it out when i saw it in the theater <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a different matter, whole mm -hmm. can of worms there. Yeah. But when you were talking about that that specific burial, I was like, yeah, if the if the bones are even from that burial, that's an, not even that is certain. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's BJ five eight one. By the way, for those who would mm -hmm. want to to look it up, um, but it's an interesting burial nonetheless, and it you know sparked a, a very interesting conversation. Now, of course. Um, but I mean, speaking of um, 
of uh, of women and war and conflict. I think that the depiction of uh, women uh, in the in the film, uh, kind of goading the men for conflict, was fantastic. Uh, I mean, the Gudrun character is that her name? It was a little bit over the top sometimes. You know, they they did, but I mean, like some of the women in the sagas that kind of go the men on are like described almost as if they are like sometimes the saga authors puts a lot of emphasis or implied emphasis on like them being the source of all the misery if the women weren't telling us to go out and get get ourselves killed then you know there would be peace on earth or whatever um so uh which of course is uh, kind of <laughs> i don't know uh says something of the um uh what's the what's what's the term the uh, the attitudes of the saga authors, which are probably worthy of some critique, of course. But uh, but I thought that that was actually cool because that is something you see in the sagas. You see women being like, I'd rather have a dead son than a cowardly son. When you're born in this society, if you're born a dude, uh, the expectation is that you're supposed to be comfortable with, uh, with violence. It's not a question of uh, if violence will be committed against you because that will happen. And everything is about how you deal with that. And uh, entirety of like like Norse society, the feminine role like in relation to violence. Uh, in you see this in the laws in the sagas. It's not about like uh, female weapon burials or whatever. It's about the entire you know attitude of society at the time, which we have plenty of sources for. Is that girls are not supposed to be victims of violence ever? Uh, their brothers, uncles, fathers, they can get hacked to death and pulled apart by horses. That is not supposed to happen to your daughter, your sister, or your mother. Like everybody's taking punches for these uh, for these people. So it's like I thought that that was kind of odd. But I mean, like, I'm not saying that that should like uh, <clears throat> this uh, this this kind of uh, this warrior woman who uh, who was in the movie that I somehow managed to not notice that she shouldn't be there. I don't. Know, I think that uh, this also speaks to a very like big and important talking point in our time and also like in, in contemporary archaeology you know and uh, in the future when people see this movie regardless there could be for all i know like there could be a million female weapon burials and warrior women out there that we just haven't discovered or whatever which seems to be the claim the thing that some people are hoping for and and maybe that will be completely vindicated by future archaeologists or whatever, or or it may not be. This movie will still kind of uh, stand as a uh, example of contemporary zeitgeist in 2022, and uh, that's what I think it should. It should kind of reflect uh, the the world that we live in right now. And I don't think that the movie leaned in or tried to to do this too much. You have so many movies right now that are trying to uh, be kind of crowd pleasers. You know, they engage in this kind of these kind of crowd pleasing narratives that are supposed to be satisfying for, you know, the average Joe or whatever, and just completely lean into the lowest common denominators and the most default of, of views that people have today. The artists shouldn't actively do that, of course, lean into those things. But um, so I think that this was actually a great movie in the sense that it, it actually challenges the viewer on many different levels. And uh, it leaves so much to analysis both in terms of its it well, also like I, well now i feel kind of dumb for even like uh reading that much into it because i mean take the universe that this is going on in this is a borders on magical realism almost right i mean there's there's so many kind of low-key uh supernatural elements in the in the film the valkyries for instance which was apparently one of the things that eggers didn't want to include in the film because he thought it was you know cheap or whatever I thought that the Valkyrie was uh, 
a tremendous addition to the film, even though I thought that that was a cool depiction on a very like detailed fixated level, how the helmet was clearly inspired kind of by uh, historical depictions, but it's kind of this kind of fantastic product uh, with a lot of avian sort of waterfowl sort of symbolism attached to it. Uh, swans, for instance, uh, which there's a connection between Valkyries and swans in, in uh, heroic literature. Her teeth are filed, um, as we know that, you know, warriors did in, uh, in Viking Age Scandinavia. Yeah, so I thought I actually like the, the Valkyrie was maybe one of my favorite kind of supernatural elements in the movie. Yeah, uh, I might inject uh, regarding the helmet real quick. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's completely true. It's a, it's a fantastical helmet and it's loosely, uh, if anything, based on archaeological um, finds. Uh, but the most reminiscent helmet shape is, of course, the Spangen helmet of the sixth, well, fifth and sixth century. Um, and incidentally, also on these helmets, uh, there is a lot of uh, avian creatures especially ducks and, and sometimes swans and you also have raptors um so so for sure i mean i think it's actually a very fitting helmet and keep in mind i mean one might argue like uh but it's anachronistic for the viking age but the valkyries are mythological creatures and they're not necessarily rooted in time in a way you know what i mean it's like you also have this you know, breaking into the burial mound to retrieve uh, to retrieve the sword. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So, which is of course also uh, well attested in the literary sources, um, where you have a lot of heroes, if you will, that, that do the same act, the same deed. And in a lot of ways, you know, we could also di dissect this particular scene uh, or scenes that's played out in the burial mound because for me that was one of the highlights I'm not gonna lie I mean for most people who are very into uh, pre-viking stuff um, that was definitely a very nice nod uh, to the material culture that you know came before um, but for sure I do believe that this particular helmet has a clear reference to uh, to uh, fifth sixth century which incidentally also as I said for the burial mound so it's kind of put in the same time period in a way. Yeah, <clears throat> I was, um, this is one of the things when I was talking about uh, how uh, Neil Price has put his hand on this movie, for sure. That is one of those things because Neil Price is one of those archaeologists who works with Viking era archaeology and things like that. But you can tell <laughs> that uh, he, uh, like many others, I mean, you and I are great examples of this, uh, Axel, of, you know, antiquarians who are you know, actually kind of have a hard on for and our heart is kind of with earlier pre-Viking periods, right? And you see this with Neil Price all the time because he's one of these uh, archaeologists who have desired to kind of push the Viking Age back in time and say that, hey, you know, let's, uh, let's say that the Viking Age starts at 700, uh, which I don't really agree with. It's just, that's just based on kind of a misunderstanding, I guess, of, uh, of what... Uh, I mean, what the Vendel period was or the migration period and things like that. Uh, and of course, uh, I mean, Neil Price knows this perfectly well, but it's about grant money, I think. Vendel period studies does not, uh, you know, generate a lot of money for projects, but Viking, you know, Viking period studies yeah. does. So if you can push, push it closer to the eras you, that you actually want to research, then it's uh, 
or you can frame it as kind of a proto-Viking thing, then you know there's more money to be uh, earned from that. Um, but yeah, I mean, one thing that I thought was like immediately uh, funny there, of course, is that you know the mound breaking scene. They break into the mound, and there's like it's yeah fifth, sixth century. You kind of go, hold on, this is on Iceland. I mean, yeah. this is supposed to depict <laughs> the first generations of Icelandic settlers. And they have like a burial there that is like 500 years earlier. To their credit, this is what happens in the sagas too. The sagas have that sort of depictions of exactly. people breaking into burial mounds and they have to fight like an, like an undead person there. And there's like a, it's a full on ship burial and stuff like that, which in itself is pretty interesting. Uh, you know, that, uh, that medieval Icelanders had um, an awareness of, uh, of ship and boat burial, uh, funerary culture. Even though on Iceland, I don't think that there's any ship burials whatsoever. <laughs> so that they no, found at least. Burials. Yeah. Only boat burials. So. Yeah. So that they have this idea that there, yeah, there are these ancient mounds and, and things like that. Though, even though realistically in the sagas themselves, like how old would these, like if, if you compare it, like even though the saga is from the 13th century or whatever, uh, the plot is taking place in the like say 900 or something how old could this burial possibly be it's like 20 years old so but, you know this is this is uh this is also typical as you said for the for the sagas themselves you know um, yeah. it's yeah. not necessarily that important that um you know because also keep in mind yes there there is this problem with time and space obviously but then keep in mind um he fights a uh, afterwalker, if you will, Ganga, or however you want to call it. Mm. Um, you know, someone that is dead, dead, but then wakes up at night and, you know, causes troubles and kills people, damages property, you know. So clearly this individual, this dead, uh, you know, uh, afterwalker maybe wasn't terrorizing the locals, but, you know, it's still a supernatural creature. Um and, uh, and also the thing is, you know, normally when these supernatural scenes plays out in the movie, it's mostly in the protagonist's head, mind, uh, or at least that's what it comes across. Yeah, because yeah. It, it, it doesn't really flow out into the real world. It's something that he experiences. It's his state of mind, you know, it's the, the internal um, uh, world of his when he sees the, the Volva, when he sees the Valkyrie twice, um, when he, or he even experiences the Valkyrie, if you will, uh, when he fights this afterwalker in the burial mound, uh, even when he interacts with uh, the, the fox, you know, that calls him into the, into the, the lair, which also we should talk about, the, the Seder. Um, which also is very fascinating. I mean, a lot of interesting references there as well. Um, but, you know, so this is, this is uh, the spiritual world of this individual uh, and also kind of maybe reflects the spiritual world of other people, you know, what they, what they believed in, how they envisioned the world around them, especially when talking about the supernatural. Um, and, uh, but the thing is, again, so say for, this particular you know breaking into the burial mound you know mostly it's it's about something supernatural that this um this uh protagonist experiences but the thing is he retrieves the sword you know 
and then he brings it into the world and people interact with this sword as is expect kind of like expected from from the individual side from the protagonist side that they cannot draw it during day only during night so that means that there is indeed something supernatural going on you know in, in actuality or people just believe it so they cannot draw the sword <laughs> i don't know it made me it made me like think a little bit like so is there actually something supernatural or is it just you know all in their minds i don't know um because there is a few scenes where they try to draw the sword and they can't, you know, because it's day. And that's specifically also uh, because the sword was like Draugr or something, uh, mm-hmm. if, I, if I recall correctly. Um, so so that, is, that is probably the only time the supernatural really flows into the world and manifests, maybe, if you will. Uh, whereas for the rest, it's, it's just um, something that's, you know, this particular individual experience. Uh, and also you could argue uh, when, um, I forget her name, um, but his, you know, sweetheart, if you will, uh, manifests this uh, nature power uh, or whatever, you know, she harnesses the wind uh, and then makes the, makes the sails uh, you know, flow with, with, with wind. And, you know, it's like uh, speeding the, the ship uh on its on its journey um yeah i like so that she only two times i like that she you're muted eric <laughs> uh, eric you're muted yeah sorry yeah <laughs> yourself i thought that a lot of that slavic earth magic stuff was eh, the weak link of the magical narrative there uh but uh i like that she raised the wind because it's like that you don't see a lot of that in movies like yeah uh, what, what kind of sorcery do people do in history well they raise fucking winds <laughs> appeal to a sorcerer so he can yeah help you sail to where you want to go yeah so more of that please yeah larry yeah i was just gonna say that you know the whole magical worldview i yeah agree that it was really well subtly done or it's kind of this more imaginal approach to these experiences where these are really people's objective experiences that are that are distinctly separate from everyday life but there's not like this hard border so it's kind of like all it takes is like a little push or you know a little bowl full of bones and blood to <laughs> to manifest these sort of things um and and yeah you could never quite fully explain them away as in their head um particularly with yeah those exceptional moments or like the, the other one i thought of is when the ravens kind of untie him when he's being tortured which i actually thought was a little bit silly in that case but for the most part i thought it was it was really like excellently excellently done yeah uh, i also have to say i really did like the scene when he um chopped the head off uh the the after worker and puts it in between his uh his buttocks which is a reference to uh Grettir, um by the way for for those who you don't know when he also cuts the head off and stuffs it between the corpse's legs <laughs> yes but uh which is fascinating damn it i keep muting it unmuting myself <laughs> uh okay yeah but uh, yes when he puts puts the decapitated head between the uh, the draugr's uh, um, legs Ass cheeks <laughs> yeah Basically. that but that is also something that we see in deviant burials yes exactly. yes so he's laying down prone 
and his head is like between his legs. And that is actually, yeah, we see that in sometimes in what is called deviant burials. A de like there's no, as the name kind of implies, there's no set deviant burial. They are burials that are odd or peculiar. And uh, there's certain pattern patterns that are repeated, you know, in Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian Iron Age burials, like uh, the dead might be laying prone, like face down. And there might be kind of weird things going on, like the, that they rolled like a big stone over their head uh, mm -hmm. when, during the burial ritual, or they threw rocks at it, or uh, they might have removed a body part or something like that. Like there's an instance of somebody mm -hmm. where they took the jaw away and they replaced it with a pig jaw. Um, or they put a rock in somebody's mouth for some reason or, or and indeed yeah decapitates the body presumably after it's dead or maybe they decapitated them and then they placed the head between the yeah between their legs afterwards so i thought that that was that's how yeah, i no, read it I, I actually that gretier thing mm -hmm. just completely um uh, i didn't realize at the time no it's uh it's uh, if i recall correctly gretier the strong if you will he fights and kills two uh draugar uh in the saga or Draugr. um the second i mean i, I recall i'm not sure if the first or the second but the second i think it is he kills uh a sh or, you know this this shepherd called lamb he freezes to death or something if i recall correctly and returns as a ghost or as an afterwalker and terrifies the farm or the farmstead and um, then when the, this afterwalkers enters the, the hall or the hearth area um, of the farm, um, Grettir confronts him and ends up cutting the head off and then stuffs it between the, between the legs and then essentially ending the haunting. It's like finite, you know. It's, um, so, yeah. it's almost as if like this film, there's like a, there's an, there are esoteric layers to this film. Whereas for most viewers, like I heard some people laugh in the theater at that point. Like that was just, you know, a funny thing. Like, oh, ha ha, he yeah, stuck his head up his ass. Yeah, but exactly. <laughs> for the initiated, that's, you know, part of a whole web of references that, you know, this, this it's like this film is part of the world of, of you know, pre-Norse culture now for a modern person who knows of what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I do believe that the actual uh, breaking into the burial mound is very much uh, maybe directly based on um, on the saga of uh, Grettir, because he, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, eh, like your 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 knowledge on on um, old Norse sagas is much more extensive than mine. I'm more material culture than than anything, but uh, I I believe that he doesn't he retrieve a sword from a burial mound uh in uh yeah i mean yeah if, if, yeah i think uh, so i mean like there's um it's been so many he years in, uh, he, i know i know that uh there, there is this um I, I only remember it vaguely now I, I can't remember the whole uh the whole saga specifically surrounding this but i do believe that he passes by a farm or something um and then he breaks into a burial mound with the help of the farmer or something like that, a, a burial mound anyways. 
and uh yeah lowers himself down and the and the motherfucker yeah, yeah, exactly. is seated and, and, in his in his is and yeah, he has and, and his sword exactly right exactly there. exactly exactly and and the, the purpose of this is to retrieve the sword that's specifically the reason why he breaks into the into the burial mound uh and there's all i mean in the specific scene there's like a very violent fighting uh you know it's like and and also this description that the afterwalker it's gigantic it's not a regular like you know you would imagine a zombie it's like three times the size of a man it's because apparently something happens when an afterworker wakes up or, or dies as they will after death is that they grow in size and oh, they're they're monsters oh, that's what they are oh, you know, almost like, like lobsters eh, they, by the way lobster. they get meaner, yeah, they get meaner with age <laughs> <laughs> yeah no uh yeah i mean there's a lot I mean, there's a lot to say about that. Like the, so uh, just to like talk about genre a little bit of sagas, uh, we we separate between family sagas, sagas of Icelanders, sagas of kings. Do you hear like the the motor noise outside when I'm talking? Somebody's. Oh, somebody's. Okay. Oh no, I do. Oh, uh, okay. You're talking, it's fine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a wood chipper outside. Somebody's some mean sorcerer sent their worst gander our way in the form of a wood chipper to uh, to sabotage this um, this uh, this recording. Anyway, so like we distinguish between uh, different genres of sagas, right? They didn't necessarily do that in the Middle Ages. So we have something called legendary sagas, uh, which have a lot of these supernatural interactions and whatnot. And I think that uh, Greti's saga is kind of like one of those that are kind of it has elements of a legendary saga in just uh, by the fact that it has a lot of like magic and monsters and that sort of thing. Uh, but in medieval times, uh, they didn't necessarily distinguish so much between this. There are sagas that for sure are more realistic and contain less of this sort of stuff. And there are sagas that don't. But the distinction between a legendary saga and regular Icelandic saga, like Icelander saga, saga of the Icelanders, is entirely like a modern, like scholarly definition. And the same, there are different other saga ways of determining or separating between different sagas. There's like classical sagas, post-classical sagas, and it's just based on arbitrary criteria often about quality, like modern scholars saying, oh, this is a bad saga, uh, or this doesn't have like a well-rounded plot. So it's either like an old saga uh before they learned how to structure narratives or it's like uh past its prime when like nobody's really writing sagas anymore and you know it's just some vulgar pastiche uh but there's no reason to actually like believe necessarily that like like the, in the kind of chronology of like classical versus post-classical sagas uh that much it's more like i mean like manuscripts often directly kind of contradicted actually like there's a lot of sagas that are assumed to come from the golden age of saga writing that could you know might as well just have been late late comers you know uh it all depends like it's it's very uh, conjectural because because we don't always know exactly when a saga was written down we only have manuscripts right so if a if a manuscript is from the mid 1300s or uh the 13th century or whatever like that's basically sometimes all that we have to go by in terms of dating the actual saga but yeah, to make a long story short um the film had definite like elements of kind of yeah Greti's saga style kind of uh, stuff where 
the veil between kind of the fantastic and the realistic is sometimes very thin. And it's very interesting how sagas sometimes do that. It's like when they're in the periphery or whatever, there are certain things that can happen to you. You know, you might, might encounter dragons or monsters and things like that that just don't exist at the homestead, at the farm. So in that like kind of way, it makes sense that he moves away from the farm. Uh, he like he follows the fox down into like that uh, uh, sorcerer's lair, like who somehow manages to live there kind of completely outside of society. And uh, uh, he, he finds out like where the sword is and it's like a freaking Bathory song, right? Like he goes down and retrieves the freaking freaking sword and there's this epic battle. Uh, but this kind of like, it reminds me of like uh, some of the legendary sagas like Ketil Saga Hung, which has that same sort of vibe where like the further he moves away from the, from the farmstead, uh, the more like magical shit starts to happen. And when he returns home, you know, there's not that much going on. But speaking of the scene in the cave with that, um, with that uh, Said Mother sort of character who has that, uh, uh, like the Aegis Hjalmur uh, on his forehead, mm -hmm. which is like l literally out of like an Icelandic tourist brochure or something. It's like whoever was the producer there, he just looked at like uh, the homepage of like the Icelandic uh, witchcraft and sorcery museum and he saw like the freaking guide there with his like birch bark thing and he says oh that's good enough for us you know we're just gonna replicate that for the film and i'm not gonna go on that tangent everybody knows what i think about that but uh <laughs> but it was interesting he was sitting there in his dress and he's like breathing heavily like a pervert looking at the protagonist <laughs> with his little head which is he's the got... head of the jester by the way yeah yeah he's like how about a little head and uh, which I thought that was really cool. Like, but but notice one thing that I noticed there is that he, when he's talking and he's like channeling uh, this, uh, you know, the gesture character, he's going like, <gasps> you know, he's like breathing and wheezing, and that is like that is straight out of. Again, this is Neil Price. Neil, Neil Price feeding. Robert Eggers that you got to have this in the movie if he's going to see things from the other world he should be like gasping and yawning and stuff like that and this goes again directly back to well I don't know I'm not going to say that uh, Eldar is the first person to point this out but Eldar you know goes into this very much in his PhD thesis about Seder uh, this whole entire complex uh, of uh, folklore that's you know still to a certain like exists residually that I've talked about on Brute Norse many times this idea that uh, the spirit can come and go for respiratory passages. And when you're thinking about people, if you're like thinking very intensely, your spirit can literally go and bug other people. So it makes them sneeze mm -hmm. and things like that. And so, so he's like busy sending his spirit envoys uh, to the other world in real time. And he's receiving information and kind of like, yeah. So, so I thought that that was one of the coolest things in the movie, just as Blair was saying the the esoteric elements of this film. Because other people are just like, oh, he's got like, he's been sitting too long by the smoker or some shit like that, you know? He's lived for 65 years in a peat house and it looks like he's 105 years old. And he's been breathing that toxic smoke and that's why his lungs are fucked up. But people who are in the know, you know, my dear listeners, we see this and they're like, obviously this is a nod to, uh, to scholarship on Norse magic. Anyway, I don't know if, no, how I sure. ended up here. I but it was, uh... Uh... 
No, I, I think it was an ingenious uh, way of uh, channeling some of that uh, esoteric uh, sorcery, um, you know, elements that, that were so ingrained into uh, Old Norse society uh, and Old Norse culture in general. Uh, also, a, a nice reference to uh, the Ergi uh, part, where he wears, as, as you said, the dress the tortoise brooches and everything so you know in order for him to 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 connect to this he needs to do something that's very taboo um which again is uh you know referenced here that he dresses as a as a woman uh, which uh you know in this in this culture was seen as something very um transgressive in a lot of ways yeah and i think that that is like i think that's worth dwelling on i mean like i don't want to i don't want to jump on these controversial talking points at every chance i get or whatever but uh that is one of the things that i saw that people were responding very positively to this uh, you know the idea of this kind of non-binary um magician sort of thing mm -hmm. i mean like i mean non-binary is the term that we would use you know when we see this uh it's not necessarily what people in the viking age would refer to it's literally like this is kind of i think that I mean, the the reason why this is very compelling, like in in Norse society, is of course because the gender roles were like they were really strict. But uh, it is as Eldar always says, it's not it's not um, they didn't see this as modern people do, like at all, like and like regardless of a contemporary like gender questions or whatever, they just didn't see it as we do, like on a fundamental ontological level, like. Uh, and that is like where the literally where the magic is for like the Viking Age. It's it's uh, it's this idea that things that are completely like that are seemingly dualistic opposites come together uh, into this kind of androgynous kind of transgressive uh, uh, shape that is able to kind of uh, go beyond uh, the programming of like everyday regular life and kind of thereby tap into powers that otherwise are unattainable to the regular man or woman, right? I think that's really what it is. It's like this kind of weird, like, I mean, well, I'm wearing a freaking psychic TV shirt right now. Like, it, it, it makes me think about, like, Genesis P. Orge, you know, with his kind of pandrogyny sort of thing. Uh, mm. Probably even, like, a, like un honestly, a better model of understanding this than, than a lot of, you know, other immediate metaphors that might, might be easy for us to uh, to resort to, you know, as, you know, people living in 2022 or whatever. Um, but yeah, and I thought that that character, it was one of my favorite characters because he was kind of like that, kind of like, like the, the mischievous. I love a depiction of a sorcerer as mischievous and kind of devilish. I think that, and that's like something mm. that is very, very old. Something that you see all the time that there's always a certain humor and, and, subversiveness associated with uh sorcery but you see that as well with like uh, the attempted assassination on uh, Ola Tryggvason uh, and uh, this, the, the the men the seder men that came to, to take him out but then of course you know it backfired ultimately on themselves so uh no thanks to god apparently <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. well yeah well well so uh, um, one of the things <laughs> that is interesting there with uh Actually, like, I mean, this has nothing to do with the movie, but just to, like, finish my point with kind of mischief and magic and stuff like that. The term that is used in Olaf's saga, Tryggvasonar, uh, skratti, you know, skratta sker, that's the, that's the scary that they're tied to. 
And skratti uh, is directly connected to the verb skratta, which means to laugh. Uh, you know, this is also uh, associated with um, uh, supernatural creatures called uh, skrats, I think, in the Baltic, which are literally kind of these um, magical automatons, these kind of familiars that are created artificially by magicians and things like that. So there's a whole complex there. Uh, but all goes back to this verb uh, to laugh. So yeah, a bit of a tangent, but nevertheless. I got to take a leak. You know, who, who wants to talk next? Somebody say something. Hugo. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting. A lot of the, the, the stuff you guys have, have just been saying almost attests to just quite how good of a balancing act Eggers has made of the sort of conflicting forces at work in this movie. You know, you've got the, the blockbuster studio element, you've got the historical accuracy, and then you've got Eggers' desire to make what he describes as Conan by way of Andrei Rublev, you know what I mean? A very kind of archetypal film of, uh, of revenge and like a brooding uh, warrior, you know, get going on a on a, 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 an adventurous tale of uh, getting to rights with his his father's killer, and I think you know some of the examples you've brought up, like uh, like the the female warrior woman who's maybe dubious <laughs> burial, um, you know, you can quibble with, but I think it's a, at least like they made a, they 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 made an attempt as best as they could. To balance the demands of, say, you know, not making like a super hyper macho <laughs> um, film with the, the element, with, with, you know, an attempt to at historical accuracy and also like the attempt to, you know, put in like a proper sorcerer figure who, who represents liminality on some level, but also have that be grounded in like a, an appropriate way. Or again, like, you know, you, you do have kind of a descent into a into a tomb to fight a Draugr, <laughs> which might have, um, you know, it's probably a bit of a, you know, a draw they wanted. But at the same time, you know, you've got that coming from, as you say, like pretty close to a, to a saga. So, I, you know, I just think um, he has, in my mind, kind of accomplished that quite well, which is to, to, to go by way of Andrei Rubiev, uh, you know, to, to really go for the, like, the in-depth, historical world building of that Tarkovsky movie and through it express something quite archetypal because you know when I, when I read uh, some stuff by Eggers at the beginning he was talking a lot about like um, young Eliade um, Campbell and stuff and I was like oh maybe he's gonna you know shove this a bit too much into some kind of boxes some archetypal boxes but I think it's it's actually quite nicely emerged from from attention to historical verisimilitude in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like the more I think about it, the more masterful it is. The way, particularly the way he approaches these like complex motifs and figures, the way that it's it's extremely subtle, like such that you know someone like Eric might not even notice that there's <laughs> a female warrior at one point. You know, it's not like this loud proving a point it's also not I almost it's like you, you could you don't have to take it as a as a claim about historical reality like the female warrior it's like it's a playful 
reference to the scholarship. You know, it's it's playing with it. It's there. It's not super important to the film. It's not going to inflame certain quarters, and it's also not going to like overexcite others. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's just really well done. There are a few things where I'm like wondering. Um, okay, so take the uh, take the ending, for instance, uh, at the so-called gates of hell. Where I'm just wondering, this is on Iceland, of course, and I thought the depiction of Iceland was perfect. They really made the best out of the landscape, and this whole like riches to rags story that actually happened with the people who used to be petty kings and old money kind of aristocracy in Norway who had to flee uh, and start to become, you know, sheep farmers in Iceland. Um, I think that that was handled perfectly. Like if I had made a movie myself, I couldn't have done that like better. I thought that was fantastic. I think that Eggers in some regards has done tremendous service to people like us. And um, there are a few things where I'm like thinking, okay, maybe he did too much with the fact that this is on Iceland. You know, I'm looking at Hugo's background here. He picked that like, a, like the volcano Hecla or something like that, or a volcano at least. And I'm just thinking, okay, so this sounds like something that is kind of a studio decision. We're on Iceland. There's volcanoes. We have to include the volcano somehow. They have all of these wonderful nuances, micro detail, little things. And then they have this gates of hell thing. Like I'm going to meet you at the gates of hell. And immediately I thought, okay, uh, that's a bit strange. Uh, that uh, To me, that meant both of them are going to die and they're going to see each other in the afterlife or something like that. It To me, it almost sounded like they, they're going to let the conflict rest and go each their way. Because the gates of hell, Helgrind, you know, Norgrind, that sort of terminology is very common in, uh, in Eddic poetry. There's an idea that in whatever enclosure... Uh, that hell is in Norse mythology that there's like there's a gate that goes there that's just like a grim and kind of dismal dark wet place right okay that that was where my brains were headed I wasn't even thinking at that uh, about that volcano that was in like background shots throughout the movie or whatever and then he goes to the fucking volcano and I'm like that's not what hell is at all in the Norse conception of things so that's just like, this is clearly just some, some idiot over at the studio being like, well, can't we use this volcano for something for like an epic? If you absolutely positively have to kill the motherfucking protagonist, let's do it at the fucking like the most Marvel-esque location we can. This was one of the things that kind of bothered some of my scholarly friends who um, saw it before me and they said, get ready for the biggest disappointment of your life. They were referring directly to this this scene and some of the other kind of melodramatic crowd-pleasing elements of the film or whatever. And I mean, that did not ruin the movie for me at all. I think that the movie has such elements that more than make up for, for its faults, honestly. Um, I was just going to say, apparently um, regarding that, apparently that you can blame um, Skarsgård for that one, but you can also blame him for the whole movie. So apparently Eggers didn't really give a shit about Vikings or anything. And then he got drunk with Alexander Skarsgård in a bar. And Skarsgård was like, oh, I, want, I want to make a Viking movie. And, and he convinced him. And they, he basically made him promise to do this. Um, and apparently they, they both agreed it should end with like an epic duel in a volcano. 
<laughs> and and Skarsgård has said like that image is what got him through some of the really grueling shooting. So I so apparently that was like I don't know baked into the premise from day one somehow. So it's like an in joke. That's what it is, or something. Yeah, yeah it's well, just a result of them getting drunk somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Man, this is. I mean, okay, I'm I'm gonna let Axel speak, but uh, I have just one like minor anecdote. So I had a friend who uh, at some point was kind of uh, an aspiring filmmaker. He wanted to start making uh, feature films. And he was like, hey, you know, at some point, if I continue down this path, we should make a Viking movie together. And uh, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, and this this is a person who has no idea about Vikings whatsoever or like Norse history. And uh, his entire idea was that he had a cool image in his head. We wanted a Holmgang, like a Holmgang, you know, means like, like literally island walking, like, like a t Holm is a tiny island. And so he said, I want a Holmgang on a tiny island. That would be mega cool. Whatever like cultural memory is baked into the etymology of that term, that is just not how duels were normally done. Uh, you know, it's really forcing forcing the evidence a little, a little bit for like dramatic effect or whatever. And it's, I mean, if you're Norwegian, you get kind of the pun of it or whatever, but to, to an international audience, this, none of this makes any sense, right? Axel? Right, no, I just wanted to add on what Hugo said, as well as yourself. Um, so one of the other reasons to why you had this very uh, ending and in, in, basically, you know, with running lava, etc. around them was because there's also a reference to the Lion King, if you guys didn't know. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so here's the thing. Um, the fact of the matter is that Amleth, of course, inspired Hamlet, which inspired the Lion King. No! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> which inspired the Norseman. No! Uh, <laughs> so it's come full circle, really. Um, so this is one of the reasons. And actually, this, this also inspired... As far as I understood, um, that one scene in in Star Wars when you have Anakin and uh, you know and they're fighting with the lava and everything, and that is again a Lion King moment. Uh, it has to be said that uh, as far as I've seen, been told, heard, uh, Robert Eggers refers to this particular movie as the Viking version of the Lion King. So yes. There you have it, girls. Uh, ladies and gentlemen. What the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> Why hasn't anybody told me this before? I, I, this is one of those things that I thought I would have seen, like, uh, online somewhere. Has anybody else heard this? Or is, uh, am I... Well, I, I've heard Edgar say it himself, actually. And uh, he even referred to... Um, uh, just give me a sec. Okay, so it's me not paying attention. This is what it is. Well, I don't know what to do with this. This is new information to me. But now it's kind of like Anakin in Star Wars, I guess. You know, speaking of which, I guess I knew yeah. deep inside somehow instinctually. Uh, but uh, <laughs> now it is all like the, the house of cards is collapsing. That's what I associated well, it with. But I, I think I had repressed it after the fact. Everything makes sense now. <laughs>
The fucking even. Oh, there you go. Wasn't that fuck the black-haired fucking lion? What's his name? Scar. Scar. Yes. Uh, we've you see? we've we've hit the new low for the Brute Norse podcast. Good thing this is <laughs> Bog Buddies. We're commenting Disney movies. We've been reduced to a another. reduced to a soy jack meme. No, but in all seriousness, um, it's uh, it is definitely some Lion King references, um, and also there is this Hakuna Matata moment when uh, you know, as a boy, <laughs> he, he curses, you know, like he wants vengeance, he wants uh, you know to save his mother, etc., avenge his father, etc. And then later you see him on the Volga, you know, that's like the Hakuna Matata, you know, it's like he meets up with these people, he learns about stuff, and then he goes back and then he then, you know, he, he exerts vengeance on, uh, on the perpetrator to his misery, if you will. No worries for the rest of your days. <laughs> Firing arrows into Slavic peasants. <laughs> raping, raping village girls. <laughs> You've just unveiled the sort of final layer of esoteric meaning, Axel. You know, we thought it was all complex and sophisticated. Oh, no, it's just. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you. King sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> oh I guess suppose there's a lesson to be learned here, as well as when you read the original sagas. Maybe, maybe it's not that deep. Maybe it's just as it's presented. You know. Well, this is uh, the. Uh the hermetic adage is it not uh, as above so below well it doesn't degrade the story these are all real and deep stories and they are uh, um, they speak to people of all ages in all cultures that's why they last and um, yeah no matter if it's lion king or some Star Wars reboot or uh, something more esoteric. It's all, it all speaks to us and For it sure. works. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think that The Lion King is a very entertaining Disney movie in its own right. It might be a cursing in the church because uh, Alec is here and he doesn't no, seem to... It's it's true. <laughs> Con Conrad is Conrad is spouting no, esoteric I, yeah. truth. We're, we're, this is an initiation that we're going through right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a yeah massive unveiling just uh we should have had a gong man we're getting a cult here this is uh a level of esotericism that i was not prepared for well so well, we should go. um talk about um psychedelics then um yes we let's... have touched upon that and uh how uh Amleth and Olga spiked uh, <laughs> that meal of the, that village. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have much to say, but it was uh, both entertaining and um, yeah, uh, interesting to see. I don't know. Someone should say something about that. Yeah, I want to say something about that. I want to say I'm very happy that they didn't eat mushrooms in the beginning with the fucking berserker scenes. Mm. Um, um, but um, yeah, well, okay, I'm going to hold off on that because I really liked the the kind of initiations in the beginning. Um, maybe we can talk about that after. But uh, 
Yeah, no, I think it it uh, I think that was uh, you know an in- interesting twist. That seems to be uh, the thing with uh, with some of these uh, movies coming in, including the Midsommar, Midsommar and stuff like that. That there's a psychedelic alibi, a box that they have to tick off. But I think that it's also like um, it's clever to include in the movie because I think that that's like in in a movie that has such an sorry um, strong element of berserkers and and uh, and whatnot uh, and and that kind of uh, animalistic ritualistic stuff that, that there's going to be people thinking at the back of their heads the big you know the the M word the, the mushroom sort of uh, the mushroom quest question. Um, and so I think that it's a, it's a, it was a good way to include it kind of as a, as a plot hook in a way without actually leaning into that kind of mythology, if you know what I'm saying. I don't even know if fly agaric grows on Iceland. Is it wooded enough? <laughs> to... <laughs> Not they that have I would silver know. birch there? Yeah, not a lot of it, but uh... at that time, surely. Yeah, well, that's actually another thing. I mean, the the big question of uh, Iceland and forests is a uh, is actually a more complicated uh, question than uh, than we would think, because <laughs> it turns out I think that that, that uh, Iceland initially had uh, quite a bit of forest, and they actually had some some kind of organized effort at forestry at some mm. point, apparently. But, yeah, but that but... scene takes place in a forest too, doesn't it? I mean, I was like, I was impressed at the at the tall trunks that they managed to to gather under in that uh, in that scene. I don't know. Nobody has any comment on this. Am I the only one who the the, the like... pagan dance scene, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I... Um, there's there's a few things about that scene. I I always feel I think that scene is kind of shoved in as a reference to Andrei Rublev. To be honest, like I. I'm pretty sure that's what he's doing with that, but yeah, I remember you said that, and I feel um, it's weird that I didn't catch that because I saw Andrei Rublev recently, and that went way over my head. So maybe I'm just a pea brain or something. I, I rewatched it. Andrei Rublev le- yesterday because I wanted to see if there are any like thematic connections, considering what um, what he said about you know this being like that in some way and i think he taught he's talking almost entirely about production like i don't mm. like thematically i don't think there's much continuity at all so i think to be honest that scene is pretty much just a reference in the sense that it's like a kinky pagan dance scene in a movie where its creator has repeatedly mentioned andrei rublev like i don't think there's much like yeah. in that scene that's like much of a visual nod i could be wrong but um when that scene came on, it kind of perplexed me. I think that you're right that it's kind of like it was kind of a forced like insert into there. They wanted they wanted the scene with a bit of nudity and like you have to show that these people are pagan somehow, so they have to have reckless sex out in the woods, right? So I failed to realize that this was kind of the the slaves, like the the the, the Slavic slaves that were doing this. Especially, I think because my focus was on the the band. Where they're uh, they're performing pieces of a Busa saga, actually, of uh, Brute Norse podcast fame. If you've listened to the Tormod Torfeus episode, you're gonna know what I'm talking about. Because I was like, uh, when they were singing, I was like, why? I know about this. They're talking about like like horses, you know, drinking from well houses or whatever, you know. And 
and I was being annoyed at the drum as uh, as uh, Wolf Hedunas, uh, founding member Matt Bunker said, there was too many drums and not enough uh, harps, as say lyres in this film. But uh, that's a digression. But yeah, yeah, I, I didn't realize that it was supposed to be the uh, the kind of the Eastern European slaves uh, that were doing this ritual. But I should have it should have been a dead giveaway because of the freaking flower wreaths they were wearing. If they're wearing flowers in their hair and there's a lot of wheat symbolism, you know that's a clue that this is a, this is a Hollywood depiction of a Slavic pagan or something like that, right? You know, Midsommar. Yeah, and oh, Midsommar too. <laughs> but Midsommar did did the same thing though. They had uh, they they used Slovak folk costumes for their uh, yeah. Swedish commune. That's <laughs> one thing about about that scene, the um, the pagan. Dancing, I, I really enjoyed it. By the way, I thought maybe any drums aside, it was pretty evocative. Um, but um, I mean, what's not did, to like? Did you guys and... think the the singer in that scene is she the same character who gets um, sacrificed at the burial of Fiona's son? Yes. Because uh, I think I think they're the same. I think they're the same person, the, the singer in that in that scene. They look very similar in any yeah. case. Um, in which case, I, I I don't know, I kind of had some like crackpot theory that there's some like deeper thematic connection between like um the character who enacts the reference to a movie about Christianity <laughs> then getting sacrificed in a later scene. Probably not true, but I just wondered if like if if you I'm not sure if I'm right. I can't. I, I couldn't really tell if that was the same person. I assumed um, it was. Hmm. I didn't think so, but not. I I didn't think of it at the time either. So maybe. I'm looking at the IMDb page right now, and uh, so among the people uh, who are like household names in the uh, uh, in in the reenactment and. Um, uh, a living history community. We have Nilla Glesel, uh, who served as a uh, consultant for the textiles in the in the film and stuff like that. She's uh, done tremendous work, uh, both to inspire, uh, to raise the bar uh, for for uh, you know Viking reenactment, uh, which you know for a while was really kind of like the quality was really rising, and there were a lot of people doing tremendous work um, um, just to bring more kind of evidence-based stuff in and also much more uh, of a craft aspect to the uh, to the community. It was funny to see uh, see her there. She's in the movie and she has, you know, her character is Gunhild, the ship-breasted. Knarrarbringa, I think, is the original Old Norse. Uh, uh, nick It's a nickname that literally means big tits. Lots of observations. Yeah, I, 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 I find it interesting that they decided to consult with um, the living history community. And of course, you know, Nilla has a certain um, precedence, if you will, you know, because she's been publishing before and, you know, it's like she she has some outreach. So I suppose, you know, that has helped fuel um, part of her involvement, which is uh, which is really, you know, what what I think is the right approach to these things, especially since you're, you know, trying to reconstruct, uh, well, 
as accurate as a movie can reconstruct something or portray something in an, you know, quote unquote, accurate way uh, or authentic way. Um, I think it's definitely important that they do rely on uh, on um, people who have uh, you know spent years of their lives researching these things, and maybe not even getting paid for it most of the time, you know, because uh, that's just how it is. It's uh, it's a passion. Um, so of course it's understandable that they would involve her and her practical knowledge um, by all means. Um, and I know that they also involve other people who have a background uh, both in academia and outside of academia. Um, and, and that is, you know, helps diversify and strengthen the, the final product, if you will. Um, so I do, do believe that for future movies set in the past, be it, you know, I don't know 19th century London, the Great Unwashed, be it, uh, you know, Bronze Age, uh, metalsmiths casting bronze instead of hammering it with a hammer and, uh, you know, on an anvil, as you often see when they do these kinds of... Uh, making scenes of them making weapon or whatever um you know that they actually ask people who have a, a knowledge into what they're uh, you know to make it believable and also it helps educate the populace or you know people in general that attend um these these movies they go to see the movies in the theater um because maybe not everyone thinks too much about it um but um, yeah, you go. Oh, uh, yeah. I just wanted to piggyback off um, what Axel was saying about I don't know something attention to detail and um, and that stuff. When I when I watch films personally, like I can forgive relative incoherence <laughs> or issues with the plot in exchange for resonant symbolic images essentially you know like i watch a lot of like 60s exploitation movies where like most of the movie will be complete trash but there's a couple of shots that are just kind of like absolutely perfect and i think this film the northman does deliver that and i think it is a direct result of the attempts at historicity and and versatility that have kind of that imbue those images with with the power that they have so I, you know, I, I, I think there are problems with the, the plot of the movie as a whole, but I think you can see the direct effect of the scholars and the level of research and the in-depth storyboarding and all that. I think you can see that in some of the really like powerful images in the film. And I, I just, I, yeah, I hope that gets, that gets picked up and, uh, and reproduced more generally. Almost certainly. Even uh, actually, even though it's quite brief, uh, the scene where they're rowing on the Volga. Uh, I know for a fact that they actually built ships. I mean, we're talking not like you know modern day shaped like a long long ship, but an actual clinker built uh, or two two clinker built ships actually. Um, one or two, I don't know. I think I think there were two, uh, and they're not powered with an engine, so they have to row. They had to learn how to roll in order to 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 actually you know get anywhere 
Um, and that shows you the dedication that Robert Eggers uh, puts into into his um, in, into the worlds that he builds, essentially, because that's what it's about ultimately, you know. And and he definitely has a passion to make his worlds believable. And the best way of doing so is to make the actors interact in the world in a believable way. And the only way you can do that is to make it real for the actors, you know. Um, regardless of your, your 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 role in the movie itself, you know, you can just be someone in the background. You're just logging around, scratching your ass. <laughs> Nothing important. But at least you're doing it in an environment that is authentic. You know, that makes it like, you know, if I stand here, you know, if I stand there, you know, it's it's like you interact with a with with a set essentially, but in a believable way. But if you're in a room and it's all blue screen, for instance, or green screen. Um, you know, it's it's hard. It's you have to interact with your surroundings in a very different way, and that's also where I think that uh, Robert Eggers uh, really comes uh, across is that he he forgoes a lot of his CGI that has become become so prevalent in modern um, cinema, especially these blockbuster movies and. You know, most movies, even if they're not blockbuster, they have some form of CGI. And I mean, undeniably, it, it's also present in, uh, in in this movie, but it doesn't play an active role. You know, a lot of this stuff could have just been animated, you know, like when they're attacking the Slavic village, they could have just done a lot of animations. But no, they built an actual village, you know, and they're scaling the wall and, you know, they're, they're interacting with this uh, because that's how you make it look natural i mean me and eric knows this because we've literally slept in the longhouse for months on end so we have this experience with uh we can recreated historic uh, buildings mm -hmm. um so so we so we know a little bit about how you know that can affect you i was very uh happy to see uh in the slavic village raid scene uh that um you know there there are Slavic sanctuaries and uh, and kind of you know <clears throat> temple for lack of a better term. So there are uh, archaeological evidence of that sort of stuff, and I was very pleased to see that you know the uh, the capital Slavic temple you know copyright mm -hmm. the one you know where he sees Bjork's character um, is based on an actual um, find. I forget exactly where it is from. Uh, maybe you know if. If Eric is in the chat, maybe he. Okay, so Eric is writing here in the chat. I see <clears throat> the temple was from Großadom, Germany. I got quite excited when I recognized it. Yeah, absolutely, same. <laughs> uh, so I thought that that was mega cool. Anyway, and on top of like uh, other things that I uh, I enjoyed in the movie, of course, um, Willem Dafoe. I'm a fan of that actor, generally speaking, but his character was great. Um. That kind of combination of 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 kind of cultic specialist and uh, court fool. I don't know, like necessarily, like how that uh, adds up necessarily. But uh, the the presence of jesters is attested in skaldic poetry uh, mm -hmm. in in Iron Age Scandinavia, and that is something that I love just seeing referenced at least probably have talked about it on the podcast before but there seems to be kind of like this antagonism between uh, uh, the skaldic poets especially who are very like martially oriented and very closely associated with the with the warrior retinue and and the 
kind of light entertainment of the of the jesters, which is considered uh, to be kind of below below them a, a bit. So there's plenty of uh, episodes in the sagas where jesters are outright bullied <laughs> and harassed. I'm not sure if you picked it up yeah. on it though, but yeah. there were also do uh, there were also mumming if you noticed. There was a goat. Uh, and there was this man dressed in a like a willow uh, attire or something or straw. I'm not sure exactly mm, what it was. Mm, mm, Did yeah, you notice yeah. that they were dancing around yeah. and they were um, yeah yeah amazingly cool. Uh, yeah, but uh, I also thought the the uh, the kind of initiation bits were really cool. Uh, with uh, I mean the temple was rather elaborate and it had this kind of like subterranean sections that, 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 that were like, I mean, considering everything we've talked about so far in the, in the, in the podcast, like completely justifiable in the, in the scope of the movie and stuff like that, you know? Uh, so they have this kind of, I think that the main point is that uh, it has this kind of leads de passage sort of thing going on. And they just needed a way to kind of show that to the audiences. And uh, they, they, they go through this kind of like, um, liminal phase where they're like yeah larping as animals or whatever and and uh, i i like you know maybe that is just like just shows uh how tiring it is with this kind of uh, i don't know this wolf cult sort of uh, stuff in kind of i don't know the maybe the even neo-pagan context where it's like that kind of wolfish badass sort of thing i, I think that like wolves are compelling not because they're like you know you know you know that kind of werewolf sort of stuff i think it's much more cool like the animalistic kind of you know yeah just from what you were saying about like um neo-pagan wolf cults i've seen uh, a, a few sort of online uh videos that call this movie a love letter to odin and uh, or or something along those lines yeah. personally i i you know i i think it's 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 a it's a it's an attempt to be an accurate depiction but i don't think it's particularly like sympathetic to no. to, to to like norse paganism i just wondered if what you guys thought about that well, well i just... think that would be appropriate <laughs> not to be to the pagan context no, stop. Wait, Blairy, you, you were cutting out there for a second. I wanted to hear what you were saying. Oh, I was just saying, I, I think that's entirely appropriate in a pagan context, not to be entirely sympathetic to the gods or not to find the gods entirely sympathetic. Bam. Yeah, that's a nail right on the head right there. That's uh well, first of all, like I 100% agree with what Blairy is saying there. Love letter to Odin. Um, Odin is a mischievous asshole of a god, you know? Uh, so, so uh, what, like, what would a love letter to Odin even look like? I think that there's, it's a it's a completely bum steered effort to even start looking at these things through kind of like a moralistic lens, where uh, there are very clearly defined borders of right and wrong and stuff like that. It, it's it's a lot more complex. I don't know even what to compare it with. Uh, I mean, uh, try to make a completely far fetched example: the police. The police is uh, is kind of the the monopoly of violence in uh, contemporary Western society, right? Uh, and nobody can really agree about whether or not like they're doing a good job, or or a bad one, or or like if they have too much power, too little power, and things like that. Um, we have to imagine uh, a society where uh, there was no monopoly on violence, 
and uh, where the elites basically were kind of a martial class of society that had a massive influence on society and its ideals and 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 uh, served as patrons of the arts and what whatnot and basically like societal development of the nordic iron age went very far in in favor of the class of martial oligarchs and kleptocrats basically and so to see that kind of reflected in the religion and material culture and its art and myths and stuff like that is just to be expected i know i'm 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 getting getting lost in my own thoughts here i think uh on this on this topic but yeah maybe it's it's like just a highly ambivalent relationship and I, i feel like that comes through all throughout the movie like yeah you know if we want to talk about powerful imagery you know you have these various rituals like the funeral or um, you know the the berserker ritual or and this initiation, and they're all kind of it's like they're they're cool they're powerful, but they're also kind of uh, repulsive <laughs> in various ways you know especially mm-hmm. like in the context in which they're all being carried out um, yeah well it's it's as um, you know to return once again to Neil Price um, I remember talking to him at the mythology conference in Ulvik in, I don't know, was it 2013, maybe? Uh, And uh, during like the smoking break or whatever, we were talking and he said, all of us are interested and fascinated by this period. It's not a time that any of us would feel comfortable living in. And I think that is true. It would be a tremendous cultural shock for anybody in this chat and anybody who might be listening to this, uh, thinking that it wouldn't be a shock to them. They're just uh, conning themselves, you know? Because this this was a society that was tremendously comfortable with violence and um, uh, comfortable with ambiguity and in, in, in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. I think. No, for sure. Um, if I might inject, uh, I think uh, one of the things that we haven't really touched upon a lot in this sense is the concept of honor, um, which also fuels the character of Amleth. Really, you know, because he wants to to take back. That be- what, what belongs to him that was lost, that was taken from him. Something that everyone can understand, but in this society, it's something very uh, profound, the, the, that kind of loss. Uh, and that it was done in such a violent way. And, um, and also throughout the movie, you see these subtle hints to, to the concept of honor and, and that the, the characters themselves, they want to... To, to, to be able to, to, to seize it and, and, you know, yet again have this um, and carry this with them. Um, so, so, and for sure, in regards to what was mentioned earlier and in, in terms of how the relationship between the, um, uh, if you will, the <laughs> somewhat complicated relationship between people um in general and of course the gods and the supernatural that plays a, a part in the movie as well as it does in the original literature um then then definitely you see this it's it's it's, not, it's a bit of a love and hate relationship if anything i would say it's you you cannot just ignore the supernatural because it's there and you know fine you can question it but ultimately i mean what purpose does that serve you know if everyone else around you is on the in under the impression that 
there is something uh, divine uh, and that, uh, you know, these creatures have powers, they have powers to alter your reality, affect you, you and yours. Um, I mean, a good example of this is all the different uh, place names that are dedicated to Thor, for instance, throughout Scandinavia, especially in Norway, um, which shows you that there was very much a, a presence of people worshipping that specific god, which again, like Eirik has um, touched upon in his uh, dissertation, um, that fine, one thing could be natural phenomena, that there are a lot of thunderstorms, but the other is obviously that uh, with thunder, there comes a lot of rain, most likely. And, you know, this god, Thor, he, he has this role both to protect, but also by doing so, you know, fighting Jotuns or, or whatever um, potential dangers there are that could threaten uh, humans, if you will. Uh, he can be so intense that he actually starts destroying the world around him. A good example of that is, of course, as uh, many, many people probably know, is the story of Thor beating, or nearly beating the Midgard serpent, Jormungandr. And uh, by doing so, you know, he essentially threatens the whole reality, everything, because he's so zealous, he doesn't realize. And, and this is something that was very, I believe, very much people believed in vividly because it's a reference so much but it's it's still it's just interesting to see how uh in, in amleth um definitely you see that the consultation on on this uh, ambiguous relationship between humans and the supernatural in this case the gods um they're they're definitely there and it's not a celebration of anything if anything it shows you the complicated relationship between the mortals, uh, humans, and uh, if you will, and, uh, and, and that which is supernatural, that is so much, almost unimaginably uh, superior to anything that exists. And a good example of that is uh, when he interacts with uh, the Volva um, and, you know, uh, Björk, if you will, <laughs> when she stands there spinning the, 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 th the thread of fate, you know, and she reminds him of his destiny, that he strayed too far. It's, it's, it's time for him to return back home and get his vengeance. Um, and, uh, and that shows you, you know, this kind of worldview that uh, Eggers, uh, via his, his consultants, tried to give the, the, the viewer, the audience. Um, and and the, this kind of way that it manipulates you in a way, you know. Uh, and of course, in, in the movie itself, it's because he hears a name and he's reminded of, yes, you know, he's lived uh, well, 20 years or something. I don't know exactly the amount of years he's been gone, but uh, you know, let's say a decade more. And throughout that time period, you know, he's moved on maybe, but then he hears the name and then you start seeing this supernatural element appearing out uh, from there on, essentially. So, but for sure, I, I do believe that uh, it's not a celebration. And if anything, Eggers definitely wants people to maybe instead of this whole brohalla thingy where we're celebrating everything that's Norse, you know, that I want to die a warrior kind of stuff. It's brutal. It's nothing to be celebrated or wanted. It's 
if anything, it's something that should probably kind of turn you off the idea that you um, fetishize uh, war and death and this concept of noble death and uh, that there is a thing like, you know, a good way of dying and that is battle. Um, and yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Blairy, go right ahead. <clears throat> yeah, I was just gonna say, I thought one of the ways in which the film was kind of weak was around this like question of honor and, and Amleth's motivation in particular. Like I feel like they, they kind of overemphasized the supernatural aspects of you know what was compelling him in this direction and what you lose. And I think what makes it confusing for people who aren't familiar with the society is you lose like all of the social forces that are that that would be pushing him in this context to do this. Uh, that kind of bugged me, but I can also see like this is already you know what a two and a half hour movie that <laughs> it would have been maybe hard to to ma like manifest that in a satisfying way. But um, yeah, and I mean like uh, in in that society, like imagine how many people would have had. Uh, justification for uh, committing vengeance, but realistically would never actually be able to carry it out, right? So uh, we're, when we're talking about um, like some of the grievances about the motivations and the plot and stuff like that, that uh, that rubs uh, a modern audience the wrong way, you know, that it's just like a perpetuation of violence and whatnot. Uh, think of what this must have looked like for somebody like in the Middle Ages or the Viking Age. This is this is as close as a hap as to a happy ending as you will get, basically, you know, because he gets uh, he gets to avenge um, people who have wronged him, which was probably like way out of any realistic, you know, bounds. This way beyond what many people could expect, probably in the Middle Ages. So this kind of like pornographic uh, revenge story is exactly the sort of thing that that probably many in in that society would have yearned for anyway but another thing kind of to backtrack just just a tiny bit um people probably don't realize you know how baked into the religion and the cult the you know just violence was generally speaking you know just as a society as i have already said that is terribly comfortable with violence in the first place um violence is just kind of entirely just like integrated into the way that people uh worship the gods down to the the fact that like rituals uh, of animal sacrifice are unnecessarily brutal or as i said as i said in my master's thesis i said they're necessarily brutal because like that's the entire point right they they are so over the top that uh that they're supposed to shock the participants almost you know it's at the point where you're knocking the head off a bull with a, a sledgehammer while another guy is cutting its head off with an axe you know the head is supposed to fly off and the blood is supposed to shoot out while it's still standing sort of stuff and uh, and just like completely like grotesque kind of baroque displays of 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 sacrifice yeah axel yeah, no, I wanted to elaborate on that because uh, in the movie you have uh, in the scene when they bury um, Thorir or whatever, the, the eldest son of Fjolnir, um, you have the, the scene where they decapitate the head of 
uh, of the, uh, I'm not sure if it's a stallion or mare. Uh, but it's a really horse anyway. <laughs> a horse regardless. <laughs> but in, in Old Norse, uh, uh, like in Old Norse times or in, in Old Norse culture, it, it kind of mattered. There was a different distinction between a mare and a stallion and how they were used. Um, but it is, is it still nonetheless interesting to see that they, um, they show that, although not in detail necessarily, but they show that scene, though we know archaeologically that it wasn't always just a decapitation. More so of anything, it was, as Alex said, you know, they, they were smashing the skull in with a big hammer. Uh, and it was all about the gore. It was all about the bloodletting. The more, the better, most likely. And we see this attested, for instance, uh, in the Osseberg burial, where you have uh, the, the remains of the horses that were excavated that are now, if I'm not mistaken, currently um, stored at the, was it, I'm not sure if it's um, the historical or if it's in his, a museum of natural history in Bergen, uh, Norway. Uh, I know that uh, when I took osteology, uh, we examined some of the um, horse material from Osterberg, uh, but I'm not sure if everything is stored there. Um, anyways, um, and it's, it's very interesting that, you know, you can still see the caved in skulls of the horses to, to today, you know. Um, and it shows you the, the very violent way of, of, of being uh, sacrificed. Um, so, yes, so that really kind of, I would say, hits it home in a lot of ways when you think about it in, in, in that sense that violence towards animals and violence towards humans was not necessarily that, um, that rare of a sight for, for young people as well as for old people. You know, you would probably experience one form or, or another of violence throughout your life. Uh, many times, most likely. Many times. Um, and, you know, for us modern people, we might be very uncomfortable with that because we live in a society that shelters us from a lot of this violence, where you didn't have a filter <laughs> in 10th century uh, you know, Iceland <laughs> or Norway. Yeah. It's well, it's like... Violence is a fact of life, and it's a matter of directing it towards the right places, yes, and, exactly. uh, hopefully away from yourself. And so, uh, what? Speaking of like, I don't know, <laughs> ritualized animal cruelty in the Iron Age Scandinavia, mm -hmm. we have okay, the Gook starship. I don't know. Uh, I think uh, in that burial alone, there's twelve horses that were slaughtered for it, and six mm -hmm. dogs. Um, you have. Uh, uh, the uh, I think Illerup is that uh, the Illerup uh, or at least, well uh, it's, okay it's, the, the weapon but also yes for sure correct yeah so and and you see these uh, um, you know the horse bones there you know the skulls and whatnot um, that they've literally just led them down to the water and you know had their way at them from all sides with weapons you know. They have impaled, uh, impaled just them, kind of these with spears and yeah with swords. Um, yeah, and they would like like chopping them in the face with swords and axes from all sorts of different yeah. angles and lots of, like it's a very must have been a very drawn out and very like challenging process to to even see this in the first place. So it's funny to see these uh, uh, reviews of the movie that get into uh, <laughs> as if this is kind of a depiction of uh, of. Uh, Scandinavian Iron Age society 
that perpetuates some sort of stereotype. If anything, sometimes uh, the reality was far worse than the movie depicts, right? So, mm. yeah. No, I, be I believe that a lot of modern day people will find uh, that kind of uh, life hellish. Uh, I mean, I, I for a fact, you know, I don't think <laughs> most of us will want to live through that kind of extreme violence that a lot of these people were subjected to, uh, either directly or indirectly. Um, but uh, it is a completely different culture than what we're used to. And again, it circles back to the um, to what I was saying earlier about honor. It's an honor society, or you know, a culture that's built around honor, an honor society, uh, where. Um, yeah, where, where it definitely has uh, the greatest value. And if someone insults you, you know, you need to uphold your honor and you do so by <laughs> retaliating. And then it's up to you to decide in a way where you draw the line, what is too much and what is too little in a way. And uh, of course, in the Old Norse sagas, you have a lot of references to blood feuds, etc., And that's just kind of like a little bit of a appetizer to the kind of violence that was exerted to, to one another. Now, some have scholars have, of course, uh, questioned the, um, uh, the, uh, the, you know, how common this was, if it's more of a literary um, work in, in the sense that, you know, it was referenced a lot and it was used a lot and it creates a good story. It's the same as we do today when we like to talk about heroes and that kind of stuff, uh, which was also very much consumed back then. But, you know, it stayed, that has stayed with us. But back then, you know, this, because it might have been family tensions or tensions amongst two different families, etc. as there always has been with like, could be land feuds, could be, you know, someone stole your sheep, etc. you know, something that from many modern day people might seem very like, well, what's a big deal? But then it's about property, you know, and uh, and then you start distrusting your neighbors or, you know, the, the closest family living to you. And it's, it's, it's something that can be easily fed into to, to this, uh, this distrust and this friction that generates over time. And then ultimately, you know, someone does something extreme and what happens then? So... For sure, um, especially maybe more so in the lawless West, if you will, which is Iceland and uh, probably Greenland, than more in the strict societies that were well established in Norway, Sweden and Denmark and Scandinavia in general, which had a very clear, um, uh, clear laws and rules that were set in place. And, you know, they tackled this in a very much a democratic way, if you will, Mostly, anyways. <laughs> but Eric, sorry, you, you have your hand. No, yeah. Um, no, just uh, speaking of of honor. So I, I think one of the things to just like really push through here is that uh, there was no system but the honor and shame system in place uh, for a lot of this time. And uh, I mean... It's not something that you can just pick and choose. Like you, you either you either act according to it or you invite people to commit atrocities against your name, basically. 
And uh, it's um, even though you don't actually want to act on it, the, your entire family is might be, you know, pushing you towards it and things like that. So it's, it's very involuntary, this entire thing and the entire like it's both the society, like the stability of society rests on everybody respecting uh, that this is how it is. But this is also the main source of all of these feuds and the bloodshed, right? So uh, one of the things that I like speaking of honor that I wanted to bring up is uh, I'm looking at the IMDb page uh, for the Northmen and I'm seeing there's uh, the freaking busboy and like the, the what is it called the uh, the uh, freaking uh, drape assistant uncredited it says here so it's they're not on the credits the credits um, and I'm just like because I, I was looking here to see if the uh, if the consultants are referenced at all on IMDb and I can't see them which seems odd like if everybody else in the crew pretty much is uh, is named and shamed <laughs> in, the, in the credits why isn't somebody like you know Kat Jarman or Terry Gunnell or Neil Price mentioned you know would Nilly Glesel be mentioned at all if she wasn't actually an actress in the movie so that's no, what I, a, like i wonder like if question. yeah i think that, that that was just something that i want like that i thought that this was strange uh it kind of contributes to kind of invisibility of uh, of our field you know do we have to unionize and start like pushing for this i'm just wondering like... if they're not mentioned in the credits um but i didn't I mean, uh, yeah, I wonder. They could be because I, I, I have to be honest. Like, if I actually stayed for the credits and watched them all the way through, maybe I would be able to answer this myself. But this is kind of it's partially generated by the credits, no? The, the full I think credits. Maybe even is uh, generated before, no? So yeah, it probably uh, is. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so yeah, I, I I can't quite speak for how, but uh, for sure, I, I definitely believe that that is worthy. Uh, um, discussion because obviously regardless you know you contributed to the to you know uh, to the product so obviously you want your name out there um and it would definitely be good for these um scholars and craftsmen and whatever have you that contributed to making this product heck you could even just have a separate list i mean as long as you're mentioned you know um, i think i think that's just due to the how imdb works i think um no. It's actually weirdly based just near where I live. And I think the guy, the guy who started IMBD was just like someone who really, really liked tracking actors <laughs> and then decided to make a website of it. And I, I think it has, because I've actually, I've got an IMDb page and I was like effectively a consultant on this obscure short film. And I ended up getting credited as production designer just because that was the limit of the categories they had. So I think it's just it's just to do with the format of IMDb. I'm pretty sure like Neil Price and Matt are in. Um, I'm pretty damn sure they're in the credits. I think I hung around that yeah, long. They're definitely in there. Were, but I think yeah, you, there's just not a category for them on uh, on IMDb. I think that's a very likely and very good explanation um, to why. Uh, I mean, how 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 would you list Neil Price? Well, you could maybe external consultant or something. I mean, surely, but yeah, if if there if there's no list or, or no category to put him into, then of course, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Okay. Does anybody else have anything else to say? If not, then maybe we can uh, we can uh, start thinking about closing down. Any questions, comments, any kudos, favorite actor, favorite joke, whatever it, uh, it might be. Hugo. Uh, Hugo can get started. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I guess I just wanted to talk a bit more about the ending of the film um, and the way, I don't know, yeah, a lot of people were saying this, this, um, this kind of like, it's all fate, I've got to get revenge stuff, it's, it's cliche, you know, it's, it's overdone, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, you guys have said like, you know, people are probably underestimating the degree to which like violence and fate are actually a part of the, the worldview at that point. But I think the, the problem I have with that is that even in the film, that's not what happens, right? It's like um, Amleth does actually choose effectively to reject his 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 you know his revenge and and you know head off on a boat with his um his new his new um uh wife effectively but um but then he he realizes you know his kids are uh, are gonna get it in the neck in this like 10th generation blood feud at some point so he decides to go back and kind of end the whole thing there so i don't know i i i i, I just don't think you know, I think people are critiquing this movie for being like too like descriptive of this like flat revenge-based violent paganism, and it's like even in its own sort of it, within its own plot, it rejects that at the end and kind of has like a an, an out there that is kind of almost a little bit Hollywood almost. I don't know. I don't. I don't really understand those those objections. I don't know. Well, I think that that and maybe that goes back to our grievances with that volcano scene in the first place. <laughs> that they they really wanted that fucking volcano scene, you know, and then uh, that I charitably assumed was some uh, uh, inserts from the studio, but uh, that I know no be now know better that it was not. But uh, yeah, I don't have an. I'm, I mean, I I agree. I guess yeah. It's kind of strange, like how many, let's say, pre-Christian tragedies end with someone basically winning the blood feud. Like he dies, but his kids are out. Like, you know, uh, Fjolnir presumably doesn't have any cousins who are going to like come wreck their shit in 10 years. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a good question. But yeah, does it ever end? I don't know. I think that that's what's maybe a bit refreshing about this is the, um, the the constant strive and lust for vengeance. You know, it's never ending and it's self-destructive. You know, and that's what Eggers also wanted to, to to mediate, I suppose, in a lot of ways. Is this? It's never ending, never ending, because then you know, because of you know back then, obviously. You, you you know you, you have atrocities not done to the individual only but also to the rest of the clan if you will everyone that are related to that individual you know they they're, they're affected by it so it's like yeah you have to uphold not just your own honor but the honors of your relatives so you're dragged into this whether you want to or not and 
you know, you can easily imagine that if this guy survived, he would establish a new family and they would come hunting, you know, uh, the, the descendants of, of Amlet. And, and it's like, it's, there, there's never peace. Um, but yeah, I do believe that uh, there was this, maybe a little bit of, um, I don't know, maybe wants and wishes from uh, different sources to where the movie should end and how the movie should end. Um, and, you know, maybe there was this, not just, you know, they wanted to, 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 to mediate that maybe there's hopefully a good ending, you know, the, the guy just leaves Iceland and settles, I don't know, somewhere in the East again, you know, um, which is also, by the way, refreshing, I have to say, a uh, uh, bit of a digression there, but it's nice that they put it in, in Eastern Europe uh, along the Volga and not, you know, again, choose to go for the British Isles, which was originally the, the idea. And it was also, um, like Hugo mentioned earlier, it was actually Alexander Skarsgård that uh, made him change his uh, original idea of, of putting Amleth in uh, somewhere in, um, I don't know, the British Isles, that he's there raiding. So, um, but then again, apparently, as far as I've understood, Alexander Skarsgård argued that, you know, he, uh, they went to, uh, they wanted more the, the, the fame and glory of Swedish Vikings, not just these Danes and Norwegians, you know, uh, Swedes yeah. were yeah, also how, out and about. <clears throat> well, how apt for a Swedish author. I mean, uh, <laughs> actor, actor, actor. Uh, yeah. So he had his own agenda <clears throat> there. Um, but no, so, so, so for sure. So I think that there is uh, it's an interesting facet, uh, regardless. Um, but uh, but you know but that's what Eggers wanted to really convey this this hopelessness of the situation essentially. Yeah. Good. Good. Any uh, yeah anything else? Oslo Fürsten. Do you have anything to say? No. All right. Um... I'm gonna count. I'm gonna count to five. Uh, to five, and uh, if nobody else else has anything to say, I'm gonna stop the recording. Okay, stopping the recording. Thank you, everybody. Maybe we can say goodbye. I don't know. Maybe yeah, not. Fun. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm just. I'm just. I'm, I'm holding off on stopping recording in case there are any good sound bites <laughs> when people feel safe <laughs> <laughs> okay